The most powerful of the Ainur is a being known as Melkor. And Melkor desires to have a role of creation and direction in this song and sings a discordant note in order to exert control over the song. The rest of the Ainu are thrown into consternation because of this. They feel like the song is ruined. But Eru changes the melody to accept that discord and create something that in the end is more beautiful than if it hadn't existed. Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Let's start with the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is probably the place to start, even though Christopher Tolkien later on went back and said, well, you know, the latest notes that my father wrote before he died contradict this thing that I said in the Silmarillion. <laughs> it's still a great place to start to get an idea of what's going on. The Silmarillion is the title of a volume that contains five different works in it, much like the Pentateuch has the five different books in it. The first of those, the, the Silmarillion is actually the title of the middle work. But um, those are called, I guess it's four. Well, it depends on how you count it. Those are called the Ainu Lindale, which means the song of the Ainur. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The Valaquenta, which is the, the saying of the Valar. The Quinta Silmarillion, which is the tale of the Silmarils. The Alcalabeth, which means the downfall. And then of the Rings of Power in the Third Age. So if you've read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, of the Rings of Power in the Third Age covers a, like, more than 3,000 year expanse of time. In 25 pages... <laughs> <laughs> of which the entire events of the Lord of the Rings are occupy maybe five pages, five or six pages. That's the scope we're dealing with. Yeah. The Ainu Lindale starts before the existence of the world. The Ainur are uh, beings probably closest, we would say, to angels, maybe demigods. They are formless beings that exist... Um, and are extremely powerful. They are the basically the the first chapter is is almost reads like a like a sacred text. It describes the singing of the world into existence by the Ainur, but they are arranged and created by the greatest Ainur, a being known as Eru or Iluvatar. And Eru Iluvatar sings this harmony, which all of the other Ainur, these spirits, have a part in, and it's incredibly beautiful. 
And they're just like enraptured by it because it seems to entail and describe things that don't exist that will happen in the future. The most powerful of the Ainur is a being known as Melkor. And Melkor desires to have a role of creation and direction in this song and sings a discordant note in order to exert control over the song. The rest of the Ainu are thrown into consternation because of this. They feel like the song is ruined. But Eru changes the melody to accept that discord and create something that in the end is more beautiful than if it hadn't existed. That's the Ainu Lindelay, basically. Except at the end of the Ainu Lindelay, the world gets created. Like the world that's described in this song gets created outside, it like cut off from the void where these Ainur live. And the inside of that bubble that's created is called time. And inside there, Middle Earth is created and all the lands that go along with it. And Eru offers the Ainur an option they're like, look, he's like, look, I know you love this song, this theme, your part in it. If you want to see this, the, 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 the physical manifestation, the manifestation of this song in time played out, you may go into, you may enter time and live in it and direct, like basically act out your part in the song. Hmm. And many of them do, right? And so when they when they enter into the, um, the when they enter into the world, they're more or less cut off from the void where Iluvatar Eru um, holds sway, and many other Ainur remain. Melkor decides to go. Um, also, I mean, I I, I don't want to go through. They're basically they basically become like gods or angels, depending on how you look at it. They're, they're beings of incredible power. They can manifest themselves differently in the world. They shape the world, right? There's like one of them who is concerned with the waters and um, uh, Ulmo, the Lord of the waters. And he, um, he directs the way the waters surround the land. Um, Yavana, the, she's in charge of growing things. She like makes fruit grow from the earth. Um, so on and so forth. They like arrange the world. Now, they know that Eru has his own plans for this world. And that includes the awakening of creatures that are not created by them, but are created by Eru directly. And they're part of a design that they can't see, the Ainur can't see the end of. And so the first creatures who wake up are the elves. Um, they wake up in darkness. There's just stars. There's no sun. There's no moon. Um, and they begin to like figure out what's going on in the world. So the Valaquenta, uh, that's that's the the Ainu Lindale. Uh, the Valaquenta, the next little section, is more or less like a mythographical rundown of who the Ainur who have come into Middle Earth are. 
um, sort of like a uh, mythological digest, much less sort of like ethereal and evocative and much more like, this is Manwe. He's the Lord of the skies. Eagles are, eagles are sacred to him, right? Um, along the way, um, we learn that the Ainur who are in Middle-earth are split into two categories, greater and lesser. The greater are called the Valar and the lesser are called the Maiar. Um, and they live in a land that's, that's like the Isle of the Blessed. It's called Valinor um, or Amon. There's a giant mountain. Manwe, li Manwe lives at the top. So that's basically what's in the Valaquenta. The Quintus Silmarillion is the major part in the middle. It's like the most substantial part. It's really the history of the elves. So the elves wake up. The, the Valar decide that there should be light. They erect these giant lamps that like fill the world with beautiful lightness. Melkor hates it. Melkor sees this new world that's created as an opportunity for himself to become master of it, to bend it to his will, to make it reflect himself rather than the design of Eru. So he, uh, he destroys the giant lamps and he escapes into, he escapes from the, the Isle of the Blessed Amon into the land known as Middle Earth, which is an area that has been more or less left alone, um, by the by the the Valar and the Maiar. And there he starts to use his power, like expend his power to shape the world around him. His power is a corrupting influence. He can't really create anything new, but he can corrupt the things that he finds there. And that's the source of like a lot of like monsters and like evil in the world. He starts building this giant fortress. He comes into contact with the elves early on. Uh, he leads some of them astray. In some accounts, that's where orcs come from. He captures them. Uh, Tolkien was very, uh, he had not made up his mind about orcs at all. He, uh, in some instances, he says they just sort of like sprang out of the earth. In some instances, he talks about um, them being elves who were corrupted. Sometimes it's men. Sometimes it's a combination of both. The Valar become aware that these elves have woken up. And they're wandering under the starlight, like in this sort of like almost Edenic existence, except for Melkor, now known as Morgoth, who's like running around trying to destroy them. So the Valar send an emissary to them and they invite them. They, they say like, hey, we were waiting for you. You're like our you're like our younger siblings. We want you to join us in Valinor. And so the elves hear this call, some of them go with it. Some of them choose to stay behind. Of the people who go, some of them, as they travel west through Middle Earth, they find lands that like so touch their souls or have experiences that so touch their souls that they decide to stay. Okay. Of the original group that set out, you can think of them as three tribes. The first two tribes cross across the sea to Valinor. One tribe, half of them stay, and then half of them go on. Uh, and then they settle in Valinor, and they live there for a while, and things are great. The whole deal with elves in Middle-earth is that 
they're similar. They're like, they are spirits who are tied to middle earth. They're tied into the bonds of, of time, but incarnated. There's like a lot of like sort of Platonism and Neoplatonism, I think in uh, Tolkien really um, with some of his ideas. Um, when they, when their bodies die, their spirits just go somewhere else. And eventually they get, it's kind of like a purgatory situation. Eventually they'll get reincarnated and they'll probably just be in Valinor and stay there forever. The, uh, the, 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 the Valar in charge of this is called Mandos. And he can like, he can like sort of judge the soul of the elf who comes to him and decide, okay, you should probably chill here. Uh, in the halls of Mandos as a spirit for a while, and then I'll send you back out or whatever. So the elves, the, the, the elves who go to Valinor are called the Eldar. And um, the first group of them, the Vanyar, they just get there. They see Manwe. They're like, this is great. They worship Von, uh, 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 Manwe eternally. And like, that's it. They're good. A couple of them intermarry with the other groups. The group that the Silmarillion is basically about is called the Njoldor or the Noldor. The Njoldor are craftsmen. They're, they have a lot of energy. They're very like sort of like fierce. They love figuring out how things work. The original like king of the Noldor is named Finway. He has a son named Fanor. The Silmarillion proper is really the story of Fanor and his sons and like a fall from paradise. Okay. Once the two lamps get destroyed, the Valar grow two trees, a silver one and a golden one. Um, and those trees shed light over the whole world. At this point, the world is basically flat. It's a, pl a flat plane. So the further away you live from the trees, the more diffused the light is. But the light is like a better than the sun. The sun is mid compared to these trees, okay? <laughs> um Morgoth hates it. And at this point, there are other powerful entities, Maiar, who have gotten lesser spirits who have gotten corrupted or just random stuff that he's corrupted in Middle Earth that also hate the light. Feanor, the eldest son of King Finway of the Noldor, makes three jewels. And the jewels capture the light of the trees. And then Morgoth, with a giant spider demon who's the ancestor of Shelob sneaks back into to Valinor, which he had been kicked out of. And the spider injects the trees with her poison and kills them, throwing the world into darkness. But that means that the, the three jewels that Feanor made now have, they have the purest light that is available in the world. They have the true light of the trees um, and Morgoth steals them and he flees back to his like fortress across the ocean in middle earth. And that basically sets off the narrative drama of the Silmarillion. It is a huge tale. Feanor has seven sons. He also has several brothers who are important and they have several children, including Galadriel. So Galadriel is the niece of Feanor. She's the youngest niece of Feanor. Once Morgoth kills King Fenway and steals the, the Silmarils, Feanor swears an oath and makes his whole family swear an oath to not rest, to risk everything and to do anything to get those Silmarils back. 
He made them. He wants them back. He's moved by his possessiveness of them. And that oath winds up basically destroying the Noldor and Mm. leading to 500 years of chaos and dismay. Um, But they pursue. The Valar are like, I think you guys should just let it go. (laughs) Just stay here. And they, they can't. They swore this oath. So he and his seven sons take off. The rest of his family also takes off after them. The seven sons, he and his seven sons need ships to get back to Middle Earth. They go to the city on the eastern side of Valinor. And that city was settled by the half tribe of elves. And the half tribe of elves are like, hey, is this like a sanctioned journey? Or like, what are you trying to do? And uh, Feanor, um, when they're not giving him the, when they don't give him the ships, uh, they attack the Teleri elves, who the sea elves who live there, and they steal the ships. They murder a bunch of them. Um, different accounts differ as to who's involved in this, but like basically the entire uh, the entire group of people who swore the oath then get cursed by the Valar for committing a kin slaying. But Feanor makes it across the ocean. He and his sons start to like set fortresses up around the northernmost part of this this continent called Beleriand where Morgoth lives. And almost immediately, Feanor gets killed. So his sons spend the rest of their lives and hundreds of years trying to get the Silmarils back. It's, I, I don't know. I don't, I, there's, there's, there's just like so many moments. So basically like the high kingship skips a line and it goes over to his brother instead of the sons because they're tied up in, uh, in, in this process of revenge. Uh, a couple of them die in single combat with Morgoth. The Silmarils, uh, just, just like countless ages of like loss and battle. Um, and this is the first age of Middle-earth. Meanwhile, the, the, the Valar are like, well, we can't have like a completely dark world. So that's when the sun and the moon get created. So when you see Galadriel in Lord of the Rings... She was born before there was a son. <laughs> and it's also written in a number of Tolkien's notes that the only other sort of like accurate reflection of the light of the two trees was in her hair. Like she's, her lineage connects with all three of the major tribes of elves and her hair is like a reflection of the along with the Silmarils, a reflection of the light of the trees. And apparently Feanor was just like, hey, can I have some of your hair? It's amazing. And she's like, no. She's she's Galadriel's good at like knowing who is up to no good or whatever. She still swears the oath and goes after everybody. I don't know. A lot of it is contradictory. She says no, which gives you some sense of like what a big deal it is that she then gave those hairs to Gimli later on. She's just like, no, I'm not giving them to my cousin, the most powerful elf who ever lived. I'm giving them to some dwarf. Um, Okay. So Morgoth has all these forces. The people there are heroic somewhere along the line. Humans exist. Uh, They come into being. They're the second, they're the second, uh, the second awakened group. And they start to come into contact with elves. They start to come into contact with the forces of Morgoth. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. They have short lives. And crucially, when they die, they don't go to the halls of Mandos to get reincarnated. They go out of time. 
They go somewhere else and nobody knows where. So controlling them is a major thing that Morgoth is trying to do. He has a lot of lieutenants. He's super duper powerful. There's just like epic tale upon epic tale upon epic tale. And they're really worth reading. The Fall of Gondolin is uh, an amazing story. The Children of Hurin is basically um, a, a, lo a lot of Tolkien's tales. The romances that he wants to tell are about humans after they show up and they slowly learn culture from these elves and they get wrapped up in this like destructive oath to regain the Silmarils. And they, 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 you could see them as legends. You could see them as myths, but they, they, they meet the qualifications of fairy stories that, that, um, Tolkien talked about the children of Hurin, um, very similar to the saga of, um, Siegfried, uh, winds up, he has a magic sword, accidentally kills his friend, has a relationship with his sister unwittingly, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, the fall of Gondolin is like an end of an empire type tale. The tale of Baron and Luthien probably, I think he said is his favorite Baron and Luthien. Uh, one of the like sort of scions of the different houses of men, this dude, Baron, uh, Baron, his father dies in uh, the battles and he is left on his own. And he spends like five years wandering the wilderness, like just murdering orcs. Um, in, in no man's land. And he accidentally wanders into the, the, the hidden forest kingdom ruled by this guy, Thingol. Um, and he's spotted by Thingol's daughter, Luthien. And, or he sees her singing and he falls in love with her. She's way out of his league because not only is she an elf, she's also technically descended from a Maya, uh, one, of the, one of the spirits, um, angelic spirits. But she reciprocates his feelings. And Thingol says, you can marry my daughter when you bring me a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. So the two of them tackle it together and they succeed where all of these other heroes have failed, right? Including uh, one of the high kings who like, um, you know, symbolically in single combat uh, stabbed uh, Morgoth's foot and then was killed and all this other stuff. They sneak in. Uh, Baron gets captured, but eventually he makes it out with a Silmaril and, um, they, 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 he gives it to, um, his soon to be father-in-law. Well, this kicks off another wave of tragedy. So the two of them get married and they're given special permission by the Valar to produce children. And this happens another time too. There's another, there's another um, human and elf pairing where they get special permission to produce children. When that happens, they ha the child, when they come of the age of majority, has to decide, are you going to be an elf or a human? And um, uh, their children choose different things. Um, once other elves have the Silmaril, the sons of Feanor have to start pursuing them when they won't hand it over. And so that's like the real, that's when things really fall apart, right? The elves start fighting each other in Middle Earth and everything sort of like devolves into chaos. The granddaughter of Baron and Luthien is named Elwing and the son 
of the other of Huor and Idriel, the other uh, human elf uh, pairing, is named Arendil. Yarendil, which is an old English name as well, Arendil inherits the Silmaril from that that was stolen from Morgoth. He sees that it's hopeless for the people who are fighting Morgoth in Middle Earth, and he takes a ship across the sea and he goes to Valinor and he basically throws himself at their mercy and says like, we need you to save us basically. And Manwe, the head of the Valar says, sure, um, uh, I will. And tricks out uh, Yarendel with a flying boat, <laughs> sends all the hosts of Valinor and just annihilates, anni- annihilates Morgoth's kingdom, throws him in chains and cast him into the void. Along the way, the 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 uh, the fallout of that is that the entire continent falls into the sea. Okay, that like gets us to the end of the the first age. <laughs> Two more ages. <laughs> I don't know where you want me to stop. Well, uh, but so, <laughs> let me just let me just let me just read let me just read a quote just that's from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> You can cut all that for content. I no, mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's its own. That's its own bonus episode. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. This is from Lord of the Rings. Give me a second. And this is why this is getting into why I have a problem with the scope of the Rings of Power show, mm-hmm. which is set in the Second Age. This is when the Fellowship of the Ring, the the Fellowship. Uh, after Gandalf dies and Moria, spoilers, sorry. Um, they make it to Lothlorien where Galadriel dwells with her husband, um, Celeborn. She says, and they ask like, who's this Celeborn guy? She says, he has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn. And I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargoth, uh, Nargothrond, or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains, and together through the ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. That, all of the stuff that I said and more, is just like right there in the person of Galadriel. There's no real way for the hobbits to understand it. There's no real way for us to understand it. But it, it, it like, it, I don't know, it expands the spirit. It leads us, it leads us to want to know, um, to try to contain that vastness in our heads. And it's very satisfying that there are answers to those questions. Um, real quick, the rest of the stuff in the, in the Silmarillion, I, I didn't even scratch the surface of the, the actual Quintus Silmarillion. There's so much stuff that happens, guys. Uh, it, it's real crazy. Um, the the next book is called the Alcalabeth, the Downfall, which is about so Arendelle and Elwing have two children. One of them chooses to be an elf. One of them chooses to be a human. The one who chooses to be an elf is Elrond, half elven. The one who chooses to be a human is Elros, and he's the he's the ancestor of, of Aragorn. Um, Elros and the other humans, when the continent they live on gets destroyed have like displayed valor and the, um, the Valar 
Grantham a boon, which is this island, uh, which is called Numenor, that is very, very close to Valinor. And they get, they're able to get resettled there. And it's an idyllic place. And they live there for centuries throughout the entire, like basically the second age is the, the history of Numenor. They live there. They have, they have super long lives. Uh, Elros lives 500 years. Um, they have Kings. They, they don't have temples. They have a single giant mountain where they go three times a year to worship Eru. Uh, and they, li- li- they they have no need for weapons. They like pass down their ancestral weapons out of like tradition. And they're basically removed from the cares of the world. Um, but they get asked, they, they eventually have problems. They get asked to come back to Middle Earth. Sauron, one of the lieutenants of, uh, of Morgoth, is like becoming active. There's very few of the high elves, the Eldar left. Um, and so their kin asks them to come help and they, they come help. But eventually that um, leads to them getting uh, led disastrously astray. And they mount an expedition to conquer Valinor. And at that point, um, the seas open and swallow up Numenor and kill almost all of them. So this it is it is it is it is Atlantis it is this race of men this is like they get just they, wiped they out. try to take yeah the throne they 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 stop they uh, abandon the worship of Eru and they begin to worship Morgoth uh and they're let us they basically they bring they 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 have such military might that like Sauron and all of his forces at the height of his power can't do anything against them but he surrenders himself to them. And then he starts to like work on them over Mm. hundreds of years and eventually leads the entire society astray besides a remnant of the faithful who live in the Western part of Numenor and who are given, um, leave to escape. And, um, they are also direct descendants of Elros through a, um, uh, one of, one of his female, his granddaughters. They're not in the line of Kings. But at that point, there's a lot of like beachheads and like um, uh, fortifications that the Numenorians built. They're kind of like colonizing Middle Earth. So there's a lot of places for them to go. They sit, they are allowed to escape and go back to Middle Earth and like join, like settle there permanently. And th- that is Elendil uh, and Isildur and Anarion, his two sons. And the, you know, they become the kings of Gondor and Rohan and eventually, um, you know, uh, give birth to Aragorn who's a character in the Lord of the Rings. Um, I wanted to, and then of the rings of power in the third age is just talking about how the rings of power got forged and um, Sauron's designs on middle earth. And then eventually how those were foiled. Um, I wanted to say, can I say one or two things thematically that you might want to actually leave in? (laughs) um, There are a lot of reoccurring themes in all of these stories and they resonate with themes in the Lord of the Rings. Um, one theme is like the chief sin or downfall of the elves is ultimately pride, but also specifically the pride of wanting to have control, the pride of wanting to have something to want to have something of their own to be able to direct the way things develop. So Galadriel knows she can be 
uh, a queen, essentially, in Middle-earth. And that's attractive to her. The other elves all sort of like experience this sort of temptation. It's very similar to the temptation that Morgoth and Sauron give into. Um, and the elves give into it to a certain extent. Like after the after the the destruction of more of the Morgoth's forces, all of the elves are given permission. Like the curse that was put on them because of the kinslaying is lifted. They're given permission to come back to Valinor, and some of them elect to stay. And Tolkien rewrote and rewrote this multiple times. There's a lot of reasons they do this, but sometimes it's presented as pride. They want to succeed in Middle-earth. But then sometimes it's written as, he writes it as um, a sense of duty. They feel like they have things, un, un, they, they feel like they owe it to people to continue on what they've been doing. And almost all of the, almost all of the conflicts, there's a couple of people who are just like more overtly evil, a couple of elves who are more overtly evil, but almost all of the conflicts stem from that sort of, inward draw later on when we get to the wizards like the sliver in the heart of the wizard who will become known as saruman is just that certain personages of uh, quality and worth regard the person who will become known as gandalf a little bit more highly than him and that starts to drive him crazy. He feels like he should be in control. So it's why we get like Frodo and uh, these other these other characters who don't have those aspirations, really, as protagonists. And it's why in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf and uh, Elrond and Galadriel all eschew the ring, right? Um, there's an argument, there's one idea that Tolkien had that Christopher Tolkien has since published is that Galadriel being offered the ring is actually her getting offered the most sort of pure and condensed version of the thing she always wanted, the thing that made her leave her home in the first place. And her rejection of that shows that she has been fully redeemed, um, which is an interesting idea. Um, then the other, the other theme that you see time and time again is this, this idea of the intermingling of different people being looked down upon by the entities who, have, who really control power, but being the source of great strength and resilience. So Arendil, who basically is like Elf Jesus, Okay. Um, he literally is at the end of all of it. He is the star that Galadriel gives Frodo the light of. He has the Silmaril on his head and he flies through the, the air on his magic swan ship. <laughs> he is the product of all three major houses of men and all of the three major houses of elves and a series of romantic of like you know love connections that are completely like who knows if it's even like physiologically possible that these people would get together let alone allowed by their parents and the people in control there's and there's there's a strong motif of often very strong beautiful and um 
categorically better women seeing something worthwhile in these sort of like ragtag dirt covered <laughs> human men. And uh, so, and you see that with, um, with Aragorn and Arwen as well. So sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, amongst other things, I it, will take no questions. No, <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I know Zach has questions. It does though, obviously lead the, the lay person who may have not kept up with a lot of, can I just say that's just the Silmarillion. Yeah, okay. Yeah. There's just a bunch of other books, but yeah, yeah. sorry, go on. Okay. But it, because of the show, okay, people are, are familiar with some of those things they would never have been familiar with. Yes. Because they had not read. Uh, yeah. And, and maybe would not ever have read. So, you know, just even you talking about uh, Numenor, you even talking about uh, Galadriel's history, you, even, you know, just those kind of things. Suddenly, people who just sort of watch the show um, are like, "Oh, wait! I kind of recognize the Second Age, you know, things." And yeah. like, "Okay, wait! Uh, this is something that I'm familiar with." So now I have like hooks, or I have like some kind of connection to this uh, because I've watched this show. Now, you didn't like the show. I was, I was, yeah. I would say there were things that I liked about the show. Overall, uh, it, it left me cold. Okay. Yeah. Ultimately, because did not follow faithfully or built yeah worlds weekly that you thought of differently like how would you now that you because when we first talked you were pretty hot about it you were pretty yeah i'm, I'm i mean i still am uh, about a lot of stuff when i think about it <laughs> um i guess like in light of everything that i've said uh a let me just say maybe it's impossible for them to make a Fair. Lord of the Rings fair. prehistory show that would satisfy me. That's fair. Like I, I am perfectly willing to like cop to that. B, um, a major issue I have with the show is that it is supposed to be another glimpse into this really wide world. Because of some of the creative decisions they've made, I felt like they really constricted that world. Really, really just compressed it. So in the legendarium that we Darium that we have from Tolkien, Sauron supposedly reformed Sauron, kind of in disguise as a beautiful person. Usually it's an elf, but it could be a man, whatever. Insinuates himself into an elven kingdom called Eregion. And the king of Eregion or the leader of Eregion is a elven smith named Celebrimbor. And they together forge the rings of power. And uh, unknown to Celebrimbor, Sauron is still evil and he forges the one ring to give him control over these other rings. And these are sort of the most, like the Silmarils like define the first age. The rings of power define like the end of the second age and the third age. They're the most powerful items out there. And Celebrimbor is able to like save the three elven rings from the, you know, being under as much under Sauron's control and all this other, this tragedy happens. That thing that I just said in a couple of sentences, it's supposed to have taken over the course of 400 years. It was less than one episode in the show and it was totally incomplete. 
And it was like, this dude shows up and he's like, Hey, have you heard of alloys? <laughs> Here's some rings. <laughs> the show's called the rings of power is I would have just, if it was me, I would have like spent a little bit more time on them being forged and like this, you know, powerful elf being like slowly, like, you know, um, uh, seduced by the craft of this, like very evil spirit. Who's they didn't do that. They just like, they were really concerned with sort of making you wonder, Oh, who's Sauron? Is this dude Sauron? Is this dude Sauron? And then, but then that was, I think at the expense of this larger story. And so the, the expanse of time and space that the Lord of the Rings hints at, like, think about how long it takes the hobbits to get out of the Shire (laughs) in this show. They have people traveling 6,000 miles in a cutscene. It's just not, I don't know that, that, that aspect of Tolkien's work that I really love wasn't being displayed to me in this work. The scope, the The scope, the, the idea that I'm looking at a real part of a real iceberg that's jutting above the surface. Instead, what I felt like was someone described an iceberg to somebody and they were like, I'm going to do this different stuff with it. Now, I've like, you know, the licensing is tough because I think that the people who made Amazon does not have the rights to the Silmarillion. They have the rights to the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, I believe. So there's a lot of stuff they can't go into. Like Mm -hmm. most of the, that, you know, dog and pony show that I told you about. That's why we needed the only Dan Bellum. Right. Well, so, but I still... And, and then they're also dealing with other constraints, right? Um, a lot of the characters are elves and they're just the same age for literally thousands of years in the, in the Silmarillion or in the Alcalabeth. But then a lot of the characters are human. They're going to grow old and they're going to die. So what they did though is to sort of maximize the actors that they hired, which is fine. They kind of made everybody the same age and Ellen Deal is in the show. So Ellen Deal is the guy who fights Sauron at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, right? So if Ellen Deal is alive, that means that this show is going to take place over a maximum total of like 350 years. And what that means is that they've taken the 3,000 year history of the second age and they're going to shove it into the lifetime of this very long-lived human. Hmm. Um, and I think if I wasn't who I am, that wouldn't bother me because I wouldn't know that. But I <laughs> am who I am, so I do know that. So then there's like a lot of other decisions they made that were weird to me. There hmm. were a lot of parts of the show that I really liked. I like. I enjoyed a lot of parts with the Harfoots. I thought they were very like lovable. I liked most of the stuff with who I assume is Gandalf showing up a couple thousand years early. Um, I really liked, um, I actually really liked the storyline in the land that spoiler alert becomes Mordor uh, between uh, the elf Arondir and Bronwyn. And I have to say, as far as like, 
uh, my aesthetics are very influenced by the movie. So like I want elves to act sort of like they act in the movies. And um, Arondir is the only elf who actually acted like an elf. Most of the other elves were sort of, they sort of acted like door-to-door insurance salesmen from the fifties, <laughs> I guess. It was really, really weird. It was weird. There's just like a lot of stuff in the show that's weird. And how should an elf act? A, uh, I mean, yeah, like they're like I feel like Galadriel is like always sort of like seeing the light of the two trees that existed before the sun. I mean, I think that there's a lot of different ways you could go with it. But it's hard. This is my problem. It's hard for me to break out of the sort of mode that the Peter Jackson movies established, which were kind of like in line with my headcanon anyway, which is that the elves like look at wor- the world differently than humans and and act in at some points much more deliberately and at some points much more quickly. But like the, the pacing and the way they hold themselves is different. One of my biggest problems with the show uh, was the depiction of Galadriel. Like if you read all of the different stuff that it says about Galadriel, you could like do a kidnapper's letter of hacking together a bunch <laughs> of different sources to sort of like create a space for Galadriel to be like an emotionally compromised, like uh, and, and hellbent on vengeance. But you really have to do some like crazy calisthenics. Mm. And I feel like what we got robbed of is that together we have fought the long defeat, right? This, this person who is like was immature at the beginning of the first age, but like gained a level of maturity at the end of the second age and then fully arrives in the third age as unequivocally the most powerful elf on Middle Earth. The only real challenge to Sauron's power Hmm. is Galadriel, according to Tolkien, at the time that this was written. The storyline of Sauron still out there, I have to catch him because he killed my brother, insane. Like, I, I, I don't feel like it's a bad storyline, but it, it just, it makes me sort of like erase a bunch of stuff that I know about the Second Age. And it also undercuts what almost every source about um, Sauron in the Second Age says, which is that like Galadriel figured out who he was immediately, or at least figured up he was figured out he was up to no good and like just cut him off. But like, she didn't really have control over what Celebrimbor, the guy in Eregion did. I really had a problem with the depiction of most of the elves um, besides Arondir. Arondir, it's like, okay, he's a sylvan elf. He's like a lower class elf. He's out in the borderlands on his own. Granted, if you ask me to imagine a world where... (laughs) Elves could get stationed for like 400 years to watch over some people. And there's enough of a unified command structure to where they could get a message recalling them to home base. But then when they all get murdered, nobody comes to check up on them that I have to like, I'm like, what? But overall, I mean, like he was fine, but like the people that I knew is where I ran into problems. Right. Especially with Gilgalad, right? Gilgalad is the high king of the elves. He is younger than Galadriel. She's like his great aunt, either great or great, great aunt. Why is he talking to her like she's a truculent Wendy's employee? <laughs> it just made me mad. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I don't understand why you would do that. It's like, could you make a Superman movie where 
Superman was a janitor who just immigrated here from Greece. <laughs> yeah, you could, but why would you? I, I mean, and, and I, and I, I know they're working with a lot of constraints, but like, here's number one. I don't know if, you know, the temptation of the ring passed to me, if I would do this, but <laughs> sitting here now, I can confidently say if somebody came to me and was like, yeah, we need you to make a show about the prehistory of middle earth but you can't use anything from the Silmarillion. I would say, um, no, I'm not gonna just make up a bunch of stuff that's already there. Get the rights to the Silmarillion. There's plenty of room to play within that structure, but they're, they're creating a completely different structure and I don't really know why. If, if you just show me a show about a, a Greek immigrant who's a janitor, I might love it. But if you tell me it's Superman, I'm gonna be like, why can't this dude fly? <laughs> and I, that's kind of the way I felt about the show generally. I don't begrudge anybody for enjoying it. I found a lot of stuff in it to enjoy myself. It feels like <sighs> there was a show that adapted another fantasy series. It was on MTV. It was called the Shannara Chronicles. <laughs> it was basically like a, it's basically like the outer banks, but with elves. Yeah. It felt a lot like that. Most of the time when I was watching it, I was like, all right. You know, and, and a lot of people, their point of view is like, hey, it's more Tolkien stuff. I'm happy with that. And it's like, I get that. That's cool. I'm, I'm just not, in this particular respect, I'm not good with fast food. I want a steak, please. Mm. And, um, and I don't understand. I don't understand why they had so much money. I don't know. I don't understand why it couldn't have been a bit better. I've got nothing against any of the actors. I feel like the direction was really weird. Um, I feel like there's some big narrative inconsistencies. Like Gilglad, just he, he, the show needs him to be a complete buffoon. Mm. Because let, let's think this out, right? Gladriel doesn't want to go back to the Undying Lands because she thinks Sauron's still out there. Gilglad knows Sauron is still out there. He got a a prophecy and it's like oh yeah unless you send galadriel back to the undying lands then sauron is going to come back in full force but he's definitely out there but he doesn't say that to his great aunt he gaslights her he's like no you got to go i'm telling you you got to go it, it just it doesn't really make any sense it doesn't make any sense to me it's very weird. And, 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 and I feel like some of the choices they made with Sauron were weird. I feel like a lot of the choices they made with Sauron were sort of to prolong the mystery box of like, who is Sauron? Mm. And that's, you know, it's fine. But like, I, I don't, I don't know. Give me a take on the 1970s animated Lord of the Rings. Go. Oh man. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, it got, it got, so definitely has its problems and its flaws was not too big for its britches. Um, got, dragged because Ralph Bakshi, the guy who made that movie was very upfront about what well, well, he basically didn't disguise the fact that a lot of the movie was rotoscoped, which is basically you film a person doing something and then you trace over it. Now, Disney was doing that all the time. They were just dressing it up. Um, I liked it a lot. It's nowhere near as good as the animated hobby Hobbit movies mm. from the same period. Mm. I feel like the Hobbit movies are stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, I feel like it's easier to make a good Hobbit movie, which is, you know, bewildering that 
they didn't make good Hobbit. I was going to say, what do you really think of the, the trilogy of the insane? It's like how do you adapt a book that you could read in a night into three movies and then cut like a sixth of that book? <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> I mean, I think that they were they were lab- they were trying to do a lot of different things. There again, there are parts of those movies that I like too, but um, even the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I have serious problems with, and I did at the time. Overall, I like them a lot. I enjoy watching them. Um, I, I enjoy the aesthetics. I enjoy the work that goes into it. But they made some story choices that I don't agree with. Um, they kind of beat you over the head with the idea that, like, oh, it's really down to Frodo. So in order to do that, they um, they just really downplay um, everybody else's uh, involvement. I don't think that's really necessary. But um, Yeah, but on Rings of Power... I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I feel like it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of people's problem with rings of power apparently (laughs) is that they just hired actors and actresses of color, which is insane. Like, and I'm sorry if like you watch, you watch rings of power and you're just like, Oh, there's a, there's a dwarf and she's played by a black person. And that's why this show sucks. Like, I'm sorry. You're just going to die mad. <laughs> like, like there's, it's, that's crazy. On the other hand, I feel like there, I don't know. There are reasons that I didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, that I think are deeply tied to the way I have enjoyed Tolkien's books. Um, so anyway, I know it's fairly, fairly contentious within the fandom. Mm. There's a big split, big split. Um, but as far as like someone who hasn't even read The Hobbit yet, I mean, what an exciting thing to be a human being who's maybe about to read The Hobbit for the first time. What's <laughs> the look? If you say so, David. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it, it just wasn't, it wasn't enjoyable for me to watch. No, no, the book. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I thought you meant... No, no, I thought no, no. You meant I'm putting if, all of the like, media think, Imagine aside. somebody who hasn't read The no. Hobbit and they're watching The Rings of Power. And I'm oh, like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, no, yeah. It, to be able to I'm read... Saying, to look, be able to read The Hobbit for the first back time. Back to where we started. Amazing. An amazing thing. To be able to read The Lord of the Rings, incredible. And you don't have to... I want to emphasize this. You don't have to care about anything I said at all. To get a huge amount of enjoyment from those books. Here, They're here. really good books. Tolkien basically invented the genre of modern fantasy. There are aspects to what he did in those books that no one has done better. Many have imitated it. But there's some stuff that, you know, people have done better. That's okay. Like, I mean, he's not, he's not like, there, there are things that were important to him and things that weren't. But overall it's just a really rich, deep and fulfilling experience to read those books. Highly recommend it. I mean, I'm just going to, I'm just going to applaud for the heroic only Dan Bellum and, and, and I'm going to say for anybody who hasn't read the Hobbit, you got to start there. You got to start with the, well, yeah, you should start with the Hobbit. You got to start with the Hobbit and a hole in the ground. They lived a Hobbit. Yeah. Um, you should definitely start with the Hobbit and then, Lord of the Rings. And then you should read Lord of the Rings. And then if you're hungry for more. If you're hungry for more. Pick up the Silmarillion. There you go. And if you're hungry for way more than that, just drop me an email. There you go. 
<laughs> email email deep ellum <laughs> like galadriel's brother <laughs> galadriel's brother yeah saved that dude baron he swore an oath to baron's father <laughs> and they he had a sorceress duel <laughs> finrod feligund he had a sorceress duel with Sauron that he narrowly lost. They both wind up in a dungeon and there's a werewolf like stalking through the dungeon, eating all of the prisoners and Finrod Galadriel's brother, who you just see in the show. He's just like surrounded by, by orcs. And then he like looks up at the sky and then he dies in the Silmarillion. He fights that werewolf in single combat, fulfilling his oath to Baron's father, and he kills it with his teeth, dying in the process. That is what you have been robbed of. <laughs> but not now. Yeah. Not now. Because of the only damn Bellum. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gonna get you some water, maybe some coffee. We're gonna we're gonna send people out into the into the books. And uh, and maybe maybe there'll be a a, a bonus Q and A that okay. will float people's way uh, at just the right time. Thanks for strong arming me into this. <laughs> <laughs>